0: Thank you. Good morning everybody. It is great to be with you. I, it, it's for all those who are here, those watching online this morning, welcome. And it, this is the point of the service where we break open God's Word. Thank you, Michael. We break open God's Word and dive into it together, um, allowing it to shape and form us. So last week, let me get this thing off my neck. It looks like a bib. One second. Last week, we started a three-week series, sermon series, called Citizens of Heaven and Earth, where we were talking about politics. And you guys came back, so that's encouraging, very encouraging. But if you missed last week, no worries. You can still follow with what I'm going to say today. Uh, but you can check it out either on our Trinity YouTube page or our website, trinitynr.org. But I do think it's worth, before we just dive right into this week, a brief recap on why we're doing this series and what it's really about. Because we talked about last week how the point of doing a series on politics is not so that we will all share the exact same politics or positions. If anything, the series is less about The positions themselves. And it's more about how does God's word, how does the gospel of Jesus guide us to think and respond in our current political climate. We're assuming from the outset, we said last week, that that none of us have all the answers. Is Is that Again, is that safe to say? Can we start with that at least? That none of us have all the answers. I certainly don't. But, as those who belong to Christ... We know that he does. And so how would he guide us to think biblically, to respond faithfully in our present political climate as citizens in our own towns and nations? So we talked about last week how no matter if you despise all things politics or whether you eat, sleep and breathe it, we are all citizens of some place. And if we're all citizens of some place, then we have Some measure of civic responsibility. So our question we've been asking is, is how would God guide us to think through that together? Now, that's an easy question to ask. But there aren't always easy answers, are there? Of course not. The issues facing our society right now are important, but they're complex, On top of that, if we go to Jesus and read the New Testament and expect him to give us a perfect, complete, clear political platform for Americans in the 21st century, we're going to be a little disappointed. Why? Because he was a Jewish rabbi in a Jewish nation occupied by Rome. It's a very different context. And so to just simply say that, well, Jesus is going to give us a perfect platform is probably not realistic to what we're going through today. But how are we meant to think through this? And so last week, we saw that number one, politics can't be everything in life. We looked at Matthew 28. Where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, therefore, as you are going about your life, even including your civic engagement. He says, make disciples of all nations. See, this is what we call the Great Commission. This is the task, the mission above everything else. That there is no political task or agenda that is ever meant to usurp this. If we are followers of Jesus. But still, we, we are... Citizens. So how are we meant to engage? If, this is, if that's the highest mission, you know, how does our civic engagement fall underneath that? Well, then we looked at the great commandment, which says to love our neighbors as ourselves. Is ringing a bell for those who were here last week? Ah, man, I hope so. The great commandment, love our neighbors as ourselves. And we said our political inv- involvement can't just be about what serves us. But as followers of Christ, we're seeking the best for our neighbors. So we left off last week asking, what is that political position that you're so passionate about? How can we combine that with a sincere love for your neighbor? And we gave several different examples of what that looked like. Okay, so, so that was last week. But today is part two of three. Part two of three, where we're going to dive deeper into a bit more of the complicated questions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in today's political landscape. Now, you might be thinking, Kirk, now, like, seeking the best for my neighbor, it sounds great and all, but have you been out there? Like, It's a mess. It's hostile. And I say, yeah, you're kind of right. It's a very polarized society right now. How are we meant to navigate that? On top of that, we live in a pluralistic society, which means that there are many different philosophies, religions, who all have their own definition of what's best for our neighbor. So, so, so which one wins out here? And on top of that, you may be thinking, well, Kirk, like, what about the whole separation of church and state? Like, We're not supposed to bring our faith into politics, Right? Should we, as followers of Christ, bring our Christian values to the table of public policy? I'll get to that. I'll get to that. But before we get to all of these questions, because i got to keep you in here somehow. I can't just answer it right away. I want to look at a prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. John chapter 17. Jesus has just finished spending three years demonstrating the way of God and teaching his disciples. Now, in a few short hours, the world is going to reject him, sending him to the cross. And the remarkable thing is, we're going to look and see, in his final hours, what does Jesus choose to pray for his followers? And I want to as we read this, I want you to focus and look for what's the main point. What's the main thing that Jesus is praying for here? John chapter 17, verses 13 to 21. If you'll follow with me. What is Jesus' main focus? This is Jesus praying to the Father. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning his disciples alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in message and in me through their message. That includes us. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Pray after me. Say, God... Open my heart, transform my mind, show me your way, even when I don't see the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to do my best to get to all these political questions in a moment. and we have a short amount of time, so have grace for me if I can't answer every single angle of this thing. But before we get into any of that... I want us to look. We get an inside scoop into Jesus' conversation with his Father the moments before he dies. And before Jesus goes to the cross, he's thinking about his disciples. Isn't that amazing? That in his final hours, he knows the pain that's coming for him, and he's he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his disciples. He's thinking about you. And he knows that the future is not going to be easy. He knows that just as the world is about to reject him, that anybody who follows him, the world is going to reject them too. It's not going to be easy for them. But the focus of his prayer is not, Lord, will you beam them up to heaven and protect them from this complicated world? Nor does he pray, God, will you help them to fit in and get along well? What is the main focus? He says, God, may may your word, may your truth May the revelation of who you are have such a transformative effect in their lives that they are sanctified, which means set apart or different from the world. And why does he pray that? Why is that the focus? Why is that so important for Jesus in his final hours? If you're taking notes. See, before we can show the world God's way, God's word must frame our worldview. Let me say that again. Before we can show the world God's way, God's Word must frame our worldview. Now, what is worldview? <laughs> what, what do I possibly mean by that? That, that? For some people, that feels like an archaic word. But I, but I love it. And I think it's very pertinent to what we're talking about. And to explain worldview, I want us to think about the major questions of life. Major questions of life. Why are you here? What matters? Is there God? If so, who is God? What happens when we die? Like, like these, are, these are the deep questions of our lives. And how we answer questions like these really frames our worldview. If you want to think about it, your worldview is the lens through which you interpret life around you and make decisions about how you'll spend your life, including politics. And whether we can express it or not, we all have a worldview. It's not if you have a worldview, but what is your worldview. And for most of us, it's, it's shaped by some combination of, of family influence, faith background, education, life experience, so forth and so on. And so what I want us to do here is, is, is to think about our thinking. Is to think about how we go about thinking. And, and ask, what is your world view? How would you describe that to somebody else? As, as an example, let's say an example of a worldview is a guy who believes that what really matters in life is success. Financial success. Making sure that, that, that he leaves a mark on this earth. And he believes that when he dies, his body ultimately goes to a box. And that's it. He probably picked up that worldview from his family or maybe some other influences around him, who knows. But if that's his worldview, more than likely it's going to affect him so that now he's going to live his life most likely working extra long hours at work, doing whatever he can to try to leave an imprint on this earth before his time is over. Are you making that connection between what really matters to how he lives? But that's just one example of a worldview. But what Jesus is praying here is He's saying, God, my people are not like the world. They're not going to have the same worldview or lens that everybody else does around them. He said, I am praying that you will sanctify them, which means set them apart, and they may be different from the world because they're going to have a worldview shaped by my word. You guys tracking with me so far? I'm I'm throwing a lot at you today and I apologize, but this is so important. Because what's amazing is that we have a God who in his love and his grace did not leave us in the dark about who he is. That he has spoken. That he's made himself known. That he came to earth in order to show us who he is and his reality. And so ultimately Jesus is saying, God, may your reality shape their world view. If I could rephrase Jesus' prayer, he's basically saying, Father, may your word be the truth that answers all these life questions about who we are, what matters, who God is, why we're here. And so I hope we're getting Christianity, following Christ is not just about what we do on Sundays. It's not just a lifestyle. It's a worldview. It's a, way, it's a lens through which we view the world through the truth of God. And Jesus is praying, says, may your word be the lens through which we view God, ourselves, and yes, even politics. And so then when we turn our gaze with that lens of God's word, and now we look at the political scene, how we our worldview is going to determine how we answer the big political questions like, what is justice? What is the role of government? Where do our rights come from? What is right and wrong? That our worldview is going to determine the answers to these questions as well. And Jesus is praying. He says, God, may may they find the answers to these questions not based on what the world says, but based on your word. See, We live in a democracy. But don't be fooled to think that truth is something that can be determined by the majority. We do not gain truth from the majority. We find that from God and God alone. If you want to compare and contrast that to a different worldview. Let's say secular philosophy. Secular philosophy, if I could crudely describe it, says there's no such thing as objective truth. That the truth is whatever your truth is and your truth is and your truth and your truth because there is no higher truth or objective truth beyond us. Now, if that's your worldview, who does determine truth? You, me, the majority? But if we have one God who created life who is alive, who is working, who has spoken, where do we discover truth? Certainly not just whatever I feel or what is going on in the majority around me. It it comes from him first. You guys are looking at me funny. You okay? You tracking with me? All right. So whether we derive our answers to these big questions from Scripture from secular philosophy, or somewhere else. We all approach politics from some world view. So what is yours? And why? And why? And we realize that everyone who comes to the public table of politics, no one comes neutral. We all come with some world view. And we all ultimately push for certain laws or policies to come into place because of some understanding of what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is not. Like Chuck Colson said, it's, it's a powerful book called Kingdoms in Conflict. It's an old book, but I would totally recommend it. The question is not whether we legislate morality, but whose morality will we legislate? Right? There's all, everyone's pushing some agenda based on their world view. But being faithful to Christ in our political world means learning how to think biblically through our political decisions, even though, I'll admit, it's not always easy. Okay, but Kirk, what about the whole separation of church and state thing? Like, we're not supposed to bring our faith into politics, Right? What, what, what is, how does that whole thing work? There is a ton of confusion around this phrase, separation of church and state. And so I feel like it's, it's, I'm not an attorney. Surprise, surprise. But I still feel like it's important for me to unpack the big picture of this the best I can. Because truth is, if if you and I are citizens of of the United States of America right here, right now, just as Jesus prayed, we're not of the world, but we're certainly sent into it. So shouldn't we know how this world operates? And how we can or cannot bring our faith into certain things. Now, to be clear, we don't bring our faith into politics because our country allows it or not. It's faithfulness to Jesus, first and foremost. So so let me clear that up real fast. But it is important for us to know that in America, all citizens have the right to bring their values to the public table, including us. All citizens do. This word separation of church and state actually doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution. It's a phrase that Thomas Jefferson coined later. But to give us a short civics lesson, so please lean in here, (laughs) <laughs> to give us a short civics lesson, um, our Constitution does say in the First Amendment, which is really where this phrase comes from, it says this Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's break it down in half. The first Clause there is what we call the Establishment Clause. It means that the government cannot use its power to promote any particular religion. Okay? So when our founding fathers fled England... The government in England used its power to push an official religion on the people. Which is exactly why those who fled England, coming to America, these founding fathers, drafted this clause in the first place. Because even though many, if not most, of these founding fathers were religious, and many, of them, most of them documented Christians, they did not want to form a government that was a theocracy. Theocracy is they push one Religion upon the people. Think of Saudi Arabia. Think of Iran. Like These are theocracies. But they didn't want to to do that. Why? Because they believed that the government's job was not to control religion. The government's job was to maintain order and justice. And then, which gives the people freedom to worship as they choose without fear of the government coming down on them. And listen, as Christians... We should be all for this. We want people to come to God freely in love, not because the government forced them to. Can I get an amen from somebody? Right? Like, like, like we should be amening that all day. But then what does the second phrase of this mean? The second half of this statement, which prohibiting the free exercise thereof, is called the free exercise clause, which means that the government can't restrict Or target anyone based on their religious beliefs. Now I wish I could go deeper into that too. But for an example. You look at countries like Egypt. That for centuries have been persecuting and killing Coptic Christians. This law is prohibiting the government from having such targeted toward anybody. But this nation recognizes that all people have the right to worship. Which for us Christians, means that we can go out into the public marketplace of ideas and share the gospel. And it's a beautiful thing that we can. Now, this is what the two statements mean. This is what that means. But what does it not mean? What does the First Amendment not mean? Neither of these phrases say that we should keep our religious values out of politics. Now, for example... Scripture expresses that human life and dignity begins at the moment of conception and continues to the moment when God draws the last breath from somebody, allows them to draw their last breath. That's what Scripture lays out for us. And that, in turn, determines our worldview, what is right and what is wrong. Right, like that, that. That determines. But we've had. But you may have heard certain people in the public sphere say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! You can't use the Bible for your reason for your politics." How do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Well, number one, that is a terribly misguided interpretation of the First Amendment. Because for one, they're saying. That we can't bring our faith into the public sphere, but they can bring their worldview. But, like we just laid out, everybody has a worldview. And whether our faith is in God, or whether our faith is in ourselves, or whether our faith is in science alone, whatever it might be, we all bring some measure of faith into the public sphere. And so, if we look at what the founding who the founding fathers were and realize that many of them most of them were influenced by Christianity we realize they couldn't have meant that you're supposed to leave faith out of it they just meant that that, that we all come to the public table And whether you have a secular worldview or a Christian one, we all come together saying, How do we work through this? See, America was built on the assumption we would bring our values into politics. And I'm grateful for these freedoms. But you know what that means? That means that it challenges us now to think clearly about what does the Bible say about justice? What does the Bible say about equality? What does the Bible say about human life? Because sometimes I've, I've noticed Christians would be like, they'll get into the public sphere. I've certainly been guilty of this. <laughs> Confession time: We get into the public sphere, and someone says, "Well, you're not allowed to bring faith into it." But instead of actually engaging that, we just go sit on the sidelines. And we're like, "Oh, they're bullying me." I wish they would just leave me alone. I wish that don't they know this is a Christian nation? but we don't engage anymore we instead move off to the side but if we're going to be prepared it's so important that we know the word of god and that we if we don't know how to respond okay let's, let's go back to it let's ask some questions Let's ask some people who've been following Jesus a long time, what does the Bible teach about this, that, and the other? And then we go back and engage in the public sphere with humility, with respect, and with love. But listen, I know it's still not easy. And I know for a lot of us, they're like, well, it's still so confusing. Because if we're not truly prepared, if we do not know God's Word and we start to dive into the world of politics because it comes up on our phones whether we like it or not, right? Then, then all of a sudden the lines between right and wrong can start to look kind of hazy. Why is that? Because, see, the world would love to frame the major questions and issues for us. The world would love to develop our worldview. For us. And this is why I, I don't think it's, it, it's hard, it's easy, to, well, let's say, it's easy just to talk about having a Christian worldview. It's not so easy to take that into the world of, of partisan politics, is it? Because we know that America, we, our, our political world is really. I know we have independence and all that, but it's really divided between two main parties. We've got the conservatives and we've got the progressives. But, but neither side can claim to have the complete biblical framework on all the issues. I, I did not get an amen from you guys on that one. So let me say it again. Neither side can claim to have the complete biblical framework on all the issues. All right. See, one example. One example. Conservatives generally emphasize important biblical values like personal responsibility, hard work. This is one example. But they don't always check to see how the poor and the marginalized are being treated within their systems. Progressives, generally work to change systems that hurt marginalized people groups such as the poor, but they treat the truth like it's something that can change over time depending on whatever the culture is. But if we know and we root ourselves in God's unchanging truth, we know that I I don't have a choice between do I choose personal responsibility or caring for the poor. We're actually called to do both, aren't we? But there's this constant pressure within our society to allow one side or the other to monopolize our worldview. Man, I mean, some of you in certain industries or certain social groups, you feel this. If you're in a union, if you are in the entertainment industry, you feel the pressure for, to, from one side, don't you? It's it's It's, it's strong. And so sometimes we feel like, ah, I, I have to pick a side, don't I? Like, if I'm going to get involved, I have to pick a side. But, but does that mean that I have to let go of some of my biblical values? But see, God has told us that if his word shapes us, then we're to never let a, a worldly, temporary political philosophy to ever usurp his word as our worldview, When we allow another party or human ideology to usurp God's word. We may focus on some biblical values. But we will end up overlooking other immorality in the name of loyalty. Now, as Christians, we can partner with a political party. If we believe that a political party best aligns with our values and our goals, sure, right? Like you can partner with that, but it can never hold the monopoly on your worldview. If we're going to enter the realm of politics, we do so prayerfully examining our relationships. We we do so asking, all right, if I'm going to partner with this party or that party, what is their end game? What are the shared values that we have? what are the shared values or what are the values that we may not share if we're going to enter politics we do so with a healthy skepticism constantly asking god for his wisdom i think it's important if we're going to actually get anything done in our political world it's you got to partner with somebody don't you you got to link arms with somebody But I love what Frederick Douglass said, who is a Christian abolitionist. He said, I would unite with anybody to do right, with nobody to do wrong. (laughs) That ultimately, yeah, we look to partner, but no political worldview ever is meant to usurp Scripture and God's Word. So above all, understand, and this is something that I've been wrestling with a ton, That I know that we have a desire to be in the world. Or we, we are in the world. But we're not called to be of it. But we have a desire to make a difference within it. Many of us do. I've heard your hearts. I know the things that many of you are passionate about. And really that comes from a place of saying, God, use me. Use me for your ends in the midst of this world. But sometimes we feel like if we're going to get involved, don't I really have just one of two options? I either have to compromise on my biblical values or I have to feel incredibly alone. But this is why I love how Jesus prays for us. At the end of John 15, he says, we're not alone. That in Christ, we are united with one another by something eternally greater than any human system. Can I say that again? In Christ, we are united by something eternally greater than any human system. We see that Jesus in verse 20 of chapter 17 shifts his prayer from just focusing on his 12 disciples to ultimately focusing on us. The church, universal, all those who would come to believe after. And what's the focus of his prayer? That we would be one, unified. Now clearly, this is not a political unity. He's not praying that everybody will agree on every political issue here. Our politics is not what unites us as the community of God. Can I get an amen for that? For for one, let's just say that we all in here agreed on what the biblical values are. Let's say that we all, I mean, we shared all the biblical values. We still won't agree on how we think those should be lived out or the way by which, the strategy by which we think they should be fulfilled in society. To use a non-political example, my wife and I both share the common value of a clean kitchen. But if you put me in the kitchen, or put her in the kitchen, it's going to be cleaned in a very different way. She's going to go one way, she's going to, no I'm not going to say that. She's going to go one way, I'm going to go another way. Right? i got to slow down. I'm getting myself in trouble. But she's going to go one way, I'm going to go another way. And likewise, we all share this value of wanting to see God's justice order the way our society operates, don't we? But we may all see different ways of going about and seeing that be accomplished. And so what that means is that we come into the family of God not with the arrogance of thinking that I got all the answers to how it should be done. But that we come into the community of God listening in mutual respect, saying, hey, what do you think and why do you think that? And in doing so, we actually bond closer together and we learn to do life together because we know that that's not the thing that ultimately unites us, is it? That above all, our unity is in the reality that we belong to God based on the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sin. That is the basis of our unity. That we have a God who came to this earth undeterred by human agenda. You had some people pressuring Jesus, Hey man, go after fame and power. He said, Nah, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We had others say, Jesus, come on, start that violent revolution against the Romans. Jesus says, no, nope. I'm going to take that violence upon myself. And in doing so, he became the sacrifice. Why? Because as he stood, as he hung on that cross and he bore the weight of the world, our sin, our pride, our selfishness, our arrogance, all our fear, he bore that, our anger, he bore that upon his shoulders. And he says, And I am removing, I'm going to give them my righteousness instead therefore removing the barrier between us and god that we might be united with him and if we are united with christ that means we're united with one another you may have heard the old illustration right if you take a hundred pianos and tune them to the same tuner what happens to all those pianos they're in tune with each other And that's the way the body of Christ goes. As we are unified, each of us, with Christ, so are we unified with one another. And if the word of God is the thing that is sanctifying me, that is setting me apart, that it is determining the lens through which I view the world, then when I take that and I view you, I view you not first as a Republican or a Democrat, I view you first as my brother or sister in Christ. If Jesus spilled his blood... To bring us to him. How can we allow. Any temporary. Human political ideology. To become a wedge between us. If you think about it. Republicanism. Democrats. How long. How many years. Will these be real things in our society. I don't know. Like what happened to the Whig party. Back in the day. Remember remember that from the history books. Are we really going to allow a temporary human ideology to form a wedge between us? But Jesus knows that when we finally realize where our unity comes from, and as we learn who we are in him, and we allow him to shape how we see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, he says as a result of that, the world will come to believe too. And the best gift that we can give our society is to faithfully live in the way of our King together. And so in response to all of that, as a sign of unity, we're going to take communion together. This table, it reminds us of who we are. That number one, we're not of this world. We do not need the world to validate us or to tell us that we belong. Because this table says that we already belong to the family of God. We did not earn a seat at this table. None of us came to this table with a leg up against someone else. But ultimately we come because when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God, God loved us so much that he would send his only son to die. For us, this table reminds us that before we are Americans, Republicans, Democrats, or Independents, we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. That is our eternal identity. And also, (laughs) when you're about to drink that sour juice and eat that dry cracker, it's also a firm reminder that we're not at the heavenly banquet yet. Right, And if we're not at the heavenly banquet, then we're called to be in this world for a reason. That we're not, just, not of the world, but we're actually sent into it. That as a result of taking this, we are meant to go out and engage this world in His truth and in His love both. And the best gift that we can give our society is to faithfully live in the way of our King together. Will you stand and pray with me? After I pray, I just want to give each of us a moment to just be silent. To just take, to allow God to to search our hearts. If there's somebody that that we're holding bitterness against, if there's somebody that that we are angry with, if there's something, some sin in our lives that, that we haven't confessed to God and He brings that to your heart or your mind... That's the time to just lay that down before him. Because we don't want to come to this table and come, yeah, thanks for forgiveness, but I'm not willing to forgive anybody else. That's hypocrisy. We want to come to this table with sincere, honest hearts. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to give us a moment of silence. And I'm going to invite us to take this meal together. So Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you that you came to be the light in the midst of our confusion. To bring clarity where where we did not know who you were, what life was about, who we are. You came and revealed yourself to us. And you didn't just reveal yourself to us. You gave yourself for us. To forgive us. To set us free. To redeem us. To show us your way. And so, Lord, I pray that in this moment that you you will renew our gratitude, that you will uh, show us how to stand in awe of who you are and what you have done for us. And right now I ask that if there's anything that is in our heart and our minds that that we haven't confessed to you, may we just lay that down before you now. I'm just going to give you a few moments of silence to do just that.